Gyro Nation Metal. Welcome back to Gyro Nation Metal. My name is Jeff, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm joined by both hosts of Lingua Brutalica, a podcast dedicated to the language used in metal music. Dr. Jess Bernie-Smith and Dr. Wes Robertson are both sociolinguists whose current metal journey began as an article focusing on the language used in Asian metal scenes. Their podcast continues to expand upon this idea using interviews with metal vocalists and other notable people from across the metal world. Doctors, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Gyro Nation Metal. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great. No problem. So, as we were talking before the show, you guys are both uh, located in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In- and so, and <clears throat> obviously, travel is pretty um, restricted right now. How does that affect your guys' work? Uh, it's it's a bit of a bummer. Um, I'm lucky that I work with a lot of um, like written or media based data. So as long as I have access to the internet and like bookstores, I'm okay. But I have some projects. Uh, that I'd like to do that I can't because Japan's blocked off. Um, I mean, we were very also lucky that uh, we got most of our data for the research we're doing uh, outside of the podcast via Zoom. So that worked. Okay. But obviously, both of us would like to actually be on the ground floor. And, you know, you can get a lot more insight in real life, like, you know, talking to somebody live and uh, exploring the scenes rather than you can get online. So. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, uh, I mean, th- I think we are very fortunate that we can conduct our research remotely for the most part. I'd say all of my projects like haven't really been disrupted by uh, COVID restrictions to any significant degree. Um, but yeah, of course, like when you're studying, um, you know, cultures uh, from a linguistic perspective, it's always valuable to do that from um, you know as close as possible as you can get. So, we'd like to get on the ground when possible. Yeah, it makes it really tricky to design future projects as well because you're like, oh, I'd like, you know, I can go here and then, oh, wait, I don't know. I don't actually know if I can. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Too. And the rules keep changing like every <laughs> yeah. week. Yeah. So that doesn't help either. No. Um, some of the things that are lost, um, not being in person, not being close, what are some of those things that you've identified? I mean, like, we're our goal for this uh, year is to, to write a book together um, that involves research that we did uh, in, throughout the scenes in Asia. And we only really have like, first-person experience of the Australian scene. Um, so even just like being able to get down the ground floor and see what it's like at a live show. Uh, obviously, if we could, we'd love to talk to fans and see how they feel about some of the things that we've looked at. Uh, of course, how much you can fit in one book is an issue, but even if it's for future research, um, there's there's only so much you can do from abroad, especially when you're talking about something like music, which is um, partially you know, experienced through, through the live scene in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're definitely missing out on those ethnographic insights is what we call them in linguistics, whereby, yeah, you go into a scene and observe and um, and participate in, um, you know, what's involved on a kind of day-to-day basis, like, to get kind of greater, um, yeah, kind of greater detailed perspective on, like, what's um, involved in being um, a member of the scene. So, yeah, that kind of stuff would be really valuable eventually. Mm. Interesting. So how did you guys... Um become sociolinguists and what does that mean uh we we became sociolinguists through the exact same program at the exact same university (laughs) (laughs) nice uh so let's see i i came to australia in 2012 ish to start a master's and just when did you start um i started my phd in 2013 right you were doing honors when i arrived right yeah so like yeah so there's in australia you can do honors yeah, you can do honors into PhD, or if you can do masters to PhD. And I'm not Australian, obviously, so I do the other one. So we started about the same time. 
Um, and I think we like ran into each other first at like a present your thesis in five minutes showcase kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and just had like a behemoth bag. And I was like, that's a cool behemoth bag. Um, and, you know, there you go. Uh, but yeah, I, I originally actually was going to be looking at like Japanese editing processes, like how Japanese people edit their own English as they learn it. Um, so I was in like what's called applied linguistics, which deals with education, stuff like that. I had no idea I was going to do sockling, sociolinguistics. Uh, but then I started uh, going to a few conferences and I heard people talking about uh, ideas about like how people interpret language as it goes through society and how uh, basically to simplify it without people and interaction and their beliefs about language, language doesn't have meaning. Um, and those kinds of ideas really stuck with me and I started kind of investigating it. Um, and then I wrote a paper for a class that was drawing on some of that and the teacher really liked it. And I was like, well, maybe I'll go in that direction. And Yeah. I think, Jess, you, you had a bit more, like, knowing what you were doing kind of through the honors project, right? Yeah, I would say so, because uh, my PhD project was kind of just an extension of my honors thesis. So uh, from that perspective, I think I've, like, kind of known I was going to be a sociolinguist from about 2013, 2012. Uh, so, yeah, I basically got into sociolinguistics via my study of um, various languages, so including Indonesian, uh, Chinese Mandarin and French. Um, so I was originally starting to be like um, an interpreter or something when I was doing my undergrad and then kind of decided that that wasn't really for me. I randomly attended a linguistics class and then was like, oh, actually, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. And then from there, um, I just got kind of increasingly interested at looking at the relationship between language and identity, just because obviously language is kind of the main medium through which we kind of negotiate our relationship to the social world around us. It's how we create like our sense of selves, uh, how we structure um, who we are and who we are relative to other people. So, um, you know, that's that's kind of what got me into it. And it's, you know, those are the kind of questions that I think I'm still um, interested in investigating, you know, right up till today. Mm. Yeah. So, like, you know, right now we're speaking in a way that we try to sound like we know what we're talking about. We're academic, right? And that involves, um, <laughs> but that's not like something that's set in stone, right? Like there's, there's not like one way of speaking that's academic. We could sound pretentious to one person. We could sound uh, uninformed to another person. Um, our, our accents alone may imply things about us to some people. Um, and those kind of complexities are what we're interested in. Although obviously for me and Jess, it's less in English and more in, uh, you know, a variety of Asian languages. Yeah, certainly primarily. Also. Interesting. So what drew you to the, um, the <clears throat> sorry, the, uh, Asian languages specifically? Uh, for me, it was chance. Um, I mean, I kind of had a, a mild interest in uh, Japan, but I wasn't like a huge, I was, a, it was a huge nerd in high school. There's no question about that, but I wasn't like um, really into anime or manga or anything like that. Uh, but my university um, required you to study a language for two years, um, no matter what your major was. So I was, I was actually a, a creative writing English lit major. Um, and I took Japanese cause I'd taken Spanish in high school and it hadn't really done much for me. Like I didn't, nothing against it. Just, didn't really spark any interest in me. And so I figured like uh, a lot of the European languages are kind of be kind of similar. What would happen if I studied Japanese? Uh, and I had a vague knowledge of this thing called the JET program where you can go and work in Japan. I was like, that would sound like kind of fun. Maybe this will all link together, something to do. Uh, and I just loved it. Like it was just the the most, the perfect blend of like challenging. And, uh, but also if you put the effort in, I could, I could see myself like learning these skills and developing. And I, I just absolutely was fascinated. Um, so I minored in it. And to minor, you had to study abroad. And when I was abroad, I was like, oh, my God, it's not just the language. Like, the I, I like Japan. Like, Japan is fun. I really enjoy this. This is really interesting. So I double majored in it and then got a job in Japan and found that I was studying Japanese in my free time, but not 
English lit. So that kind of told me, you know, all right. Uh, and then I, I just was buying some books on language and I stumbled across like linguistic ideas. And I didn't, I had taken one class. I, unlike Jess, I didn't have like a real background in it. But I thought, all right, well, maybe um, I want to learn more about this. So I'll apply for a master's and then came down to Australia and there you go. So what's the difference between an honors program and a master's program? Honors is sub shorter. So honors is typically one year, whereas master's is usually two. Um, mm -hmm. And okay. uh, the thesis length can also vary a little bit. So a typical honors thesis, I mean, depending on the university, is typically around like twelve to 15,000 words. I think mine was actually 18,000, but that might have been a product of the rules at my university at the time. Um, yeah, whereas a master's thesis is what, around like the 20,000 word mark? Like 20, 20 to 25, yeah. something like that. And also like honors also, um, I think it goes more with, like they identify the really, really high achieving students. Like for Jess, yeah. uh, Jess had, you, you'd done, what was it? French and Indonesian and Chinese and linguistics yeah. in undergrad? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Jess had like, oh. like in case of someone like Jess, she had all these backgrounds and enough, uh, good enough marks that the, like not everyone can hop into kind of honors. Yeah, you have uh, to receive mm -hmm. like a, yeah, you have to have a certain like GPA and stuff like that to um, enter. Whereas I think masters has a slightly lower prerequisite. Is that right, Wes? Not having done one myself. I, I don't know, because I was an international student, so yeah. I just had to fill out a bunch of forms. Well, my knowledge um, I'm sure, like, is that it's slightly lower, not like massively, but mm. slightly. Mm. And like you, because did you have a project in mind? Like when, how did you move from your uh, your undergrad to the master's project? Was it in mind at the time? Yeah, well, typically like in Australian universities and stuff, like uh, when you're in your final year of your undergraduate studies, um, a lot of your lecturers and stuff will kind of like talk to you about like your potential for honours. And, you know, then you might like develop some ideas of projects that you might be interested in pursuing at an honours level. So um, the kind of like work that I was doing as part of my um, Indonesian major um, and in linguistics was kind of um, aligned a lot with uh, my eventual honours uh, research on Chinese Indonesian minorities. So yeah, typically, like, you kind of start mm. thinking about it at the very least um, during your final year of undergrad, um, yeah, before you actually initiate your honours project. So it's a, I think it's a little bit different to masters in that regard. And I think also, like, a lot of the, um, the honours students are people they picked, assuming that they have a lot of background knowledge, whereas yeah. with a masters, I spent a year taking basic classes. Uh, like, like, they were like, yeah, you don't know anything about linguistics, really, so here's a year of classes, and then you know, try your thesis in the last uh, semester kind of thing. So a bit more like uh, hand-holding early on compared Ooh, to, okay. Yeah. Like I wasn't, I wasn't uh, selected like Jess. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, I will pay you money to study at your university. And they said, yeah, okay. Hmm. That being said though, I think there's like more of a significant um, kind of transition between honors and PhD than there is between masters and PhD. Mm. I felt a lot more underprepared for PhD um, than I think a lot of people who had completed masters were at the time. And was that partly because of the length of the course or because I think of the, so. um, yeah. the requirements? It's just like, yeah, like the requirements are quite like, you know, there are quite like high level requirements for honors um, programs, but I think just the length being only one year and you don't have, you don't necessarily like attain a lot of research experience in the space of just like one project one year so then, you know, after that, immediately embarking on like what ended up for me being a five-year project, I think is a pretty, mm. you know, giant leap um, in terms of experience. Yeah. And then Jess, have you also studied abroad? Um, 
No, not since like, so I did a little bit in high school and stuff, but um, no, otherwise I've just been like fully like in Melbourne. <laughs> so born in well, Melbourne. Don't, don't, in don't Melbourne. ignore the, the research <laughs> yeah, you did abroad. I, mean, I don't know if that would be considered study abroad, but yeah, I did um, like seven no. months of field work um, in Kalimantan in Indonesia. Okay. It's in Borneo Island, if you're familiar with, with like, that area. Yeah. yeah. So. Not terribly. Yeah. But well, I will definitely look it up later. <laughs> It's right on the uh, yeah. The she had a much more interesting, yeah. much more interesting nice. research experience than mine. I just sat in my room. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. You know what? There's so many different ways to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. Very much so. So then, how did this blossom then into the Lingua Brutalica podcast? How did you guys meet? How did you guys um, come up with this idea? And and is it also is it uh, entrenched with your academia right now, or is it something that you're just doing as a passion project? Uh, like I. I can't. I don't know if I can speak for both of us, but I, like I've I've liked metal since high school. Um, not the same types of metal, but I've been into it. It's been part of my identity in my life for a long time, and so there's always like a thought in the back of my head, like what if I could do a project on metal? But I always thought it was nonsense. Like I'm not in music studies. I'm not in cultural studies. I, well, a little bit of cultural studies, but like, how am I going to do a project? I'm in I'm in Japanese, focusing on the Japanese writing system as a, a marker of identity work. How am I going to study metal? Uh, so I, you know, the thought was in my brain, I'm not going to lie, but I never thought it was anything serious. Like, um, and I'm, I'm guessing Jess, you kind of felt the same way. Yeah, more or less. Like, right. yeah, obviously like metal has been a part of my identity for like a really long time. Like I think like where's like since high school at the very least. Um, but I never really considered it to be something that would be compatible with my academic identity until relatively recently. Um, I, you know, I kind of just kept that as like an aspect of like, you know, my personal identity, something that like, you know, I would practice like on the weekends, like outside of my academic uh, ventures. But yeah, obviously things, yeah. things change pretty dramatically when, um, you know, met Wes and we kind of talked about the possibility of uh, collaborating and bringing yeah. in our personal interests and metal into our research. Yeah, like, so we'd, we'd been, obviously, you know, you don't survive a PhD without people to hang out with. And, Very you know, true. especially when you can listen to the same music of those people and go to the same metal bars and stuff like that. So, yep. like, Jess and I met at the, that mini conference, and then we, like, ended up, I think we bumped into each other. We didn't see each other after that until I think we bumped into each other at, like, a Guar show, yeah. was it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, hey, I know I talked to you that one time. You had the bag with the behemoth. Yeah. And, um... Then we're like, we, so we exchanged contact information, like, let's hang out. And like, there's like a metal bar they knew about that was like three blocks from where I was living at the time. Uh, so we just, you know, started chatting and I met like her now husband who was in a, a band in um, Melbourne that was, you know, really good. And so we started going to more live shows and stuff like that. And then uh, I went down to Sydney for this job that I'm at now. Uh, and I was listening to... Um, some metal on Spotify or YouTube or something. I can't remember which one, but it recommended me this band called Gotsutotsukotsu, which is a, a Japanese kind of like thrash death metal band. Um, and I was really digging it. I was like, oh, wow, you know, Spotify didn't mess up the recommends here. I'm, I'm all about this. And they had, uh, I looked at their band information and they were using the Japanese writing system in a weird way. And I was like, wait a minute, that's what I study. Like, <laughs> Are they like? Are they using the writing system to be metal? Is that what's going on? And so, I, like, I think I, I just messaged Jess about it and like, hey, check out this metal band that does like a funny thing. And Jess was like, you know, Thonic also does like funny thing. Yeah. And stuff. yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. And then I was like, well, okay, so why don't we maybe do a research project on it? And then uh, we we're like, why not 
make it a better research project by attempting to interview both of the bands. And we did. And they said yes for some reason. <laughs> and that got us like, and that went really well. And we got a really good paper out of it. And it got published in a, a journal that both of us have wanted to be in a while and have both been individually rejected. <laughs> by. Um, <laughs> so, you know, by our powers combined. Uh, and then because of that, we decided to, you know, keep going. Um, and like, which journal was this? Uh, language and communication. Oh, cool. And awesome. So we decided to keep going in a project for I think I think I mentioned the book that we're writing, but then Jess also was had the idea to like uh, you phrase it like kind of breaking down the academic walls a bit, right? Yeah, well, because one of the kind of issues that I think is ongoing in academia is our kind of inability to communicate our research uh, to more general audiences. Uh, because obviously, like, if you're going to talk about, like, the impact of your research, uh, then I think you really need to make that impact accessible to people who aren't already experts in your field. Um, and, you know, typically, not only from, like, a purely linguistic perspective of academics just using complex language and things like that, academics just aren't usually very good at uh, kind of taking the time out to, um, I suppose, engage with in a meaningful way um, audiences that are impacted by or interested in the kind of work that we're doing. Uh, and mm. so that's what I really wanted to do was, you know, not just kind of um, sit and, uh, you know, lecture to um, audiences that are interested in our work, but also like actively engage with those audiences and bring them into the process of creating, um, you know, the research that we're interested mm. in pursuing. So that's really kind of where the um, idea of, of Lingua Britannica kind of germinated from. And like the the paper we wrote, you know, you can't access that without a university subscription or or an absorbent amount of money. Uh, when you publish an academic book, depending on the publisher, like like my first book costs like two hundred dollars or something. It's it's mm -hmm. insanely expensive, and those kind of walls are really unfortunate. Um, so you know, especially when we're we're trying to study a community that uh, we don't want to be like clinical about. We want to show, uh, want to make something that they'd be interested in. So yeah, like when just said, you know, why don't we do something as well that people can actually access and like they'd actually want to read they, they don't need like a phd in linguistics to understand what well hopefully understand yeah. what's going on yeah uh that was yeah i was like okay yeah interesting idea i like it so the only place to find that article is um through the university subscription then kind of yeah. yeah i mean you okay. can pay i think sometimes um um you can find um, like academia.edu files and stuff like mm. that of academic articles that are free okay. access, but um, yeah, they're relatively rare. Otherwise, yeah, pretty much academic articles are just behind a paywall, which makes them largely inaccessible. I have heard that sometimes if you email an academic, uh, they might send you a copy of the article, but I wouldn't know anything about that. Okay, sounds good. So back into the podcast here, um, you guys seem to have quite a bit of fun with it, but you guys are also kind of like you're, you're kind of breaking down those barriers, but also using it as a way to reach out and reach more people. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I would say so. Um, yeah. I mean, I think like the majority of our audience is probably uh, people that are um, you know involved in at least a metal scene, um, you know, at a minimum. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd say we are kind of like maybe reaching out in the sense that the people that we're interviewing, um, you know, may not necessarily be known to a lot of um, listeners that we have, particularly, you know, if we're talking about uh, listeners that we have overseas who are probably not very familiar with, like, you know, the local metal scene in Melbourne, for instance, as we've, like, interviewed quite a lot mm. of bands from mm. my local scene in Melbourne. Um, so I think in that sense, yeah, certainly we've, um, yeah, expanded um, the reach. 
um, of those bands. And I suppose as well, like I guess we could say, like given the content of the interviews that we've conducted, um, I guess we're also kind of reaching out in that regard because um, they're not, you know, your typical mental, um, metal interviews. In fact, like I think that's some of the charm of it in some cases, as we've heard from um, a lot of our interviewees, but that they've actually really enjoyed talking about their lyrics because they don't often get asked a lot of questions about you know, their lyrics uh, in, you know, an average interview with like, um, you know, like a lot of the metal publications and stuff like, you know, Metal Hammer or whatever yeah. it is. Have you guys found more positive reception um, reaching out through bands like uh, for a podcast versus just a basic interview where you sit down and ask them simple questions? We've never done just a basic interview, so I'm not really sure. Um, but like, it's a real uh, crapshoot if we get an interview or not. Like we just shotgun approach it. Um, we've gotten so many no's. We've gotten ghosted by so many people. Like, not ghost. Ghost is not even the right word. Just completely ignored. Um, we've gotten interviews that have fallen apart. Uh, like, if we'd gotten interv- every interview we'd reached out for, we'd have like <laughs> twice, three times the catalog. Yeah, <laughs> also, we'd have nice. <laughs> we would have we'd have to quit our jobs because there'd be too many of them. Um, yeah, you know, like I was a. <laughs> I think I, I was appreciated when they say. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, <laughs> um, our, uh, I always appreciate it when they actually write us back and say no. Like, there's been a few bands that I've really wanted to talk to that just like told us, "Nah, sorry, not interested." And I was like, "All right, you know what? Fair enough." Um, yeah, but, at least you know where you stand. Yeah, yeah, at least we know where I stand. At least I know the email got through, right? Um, mm-hmm. But uh, on the other hand, I've been really surprised at the number of it's like it's it's it is a total crapshoot because like it's some of the you write like you reach out to these minor bands that have like a hundred fans and they don't respond and then like i sent an email to archspire and they got back to me like the next day being like yeah let's do it i'm like you're huge why would you talk to me um and then on the other hand you know like i'll, I'll reach out to another band that's pretty big and nothing and then i'll hit up some local band and they're like oh dude that's you know, I, yeah i'd love to um the only like guarantee is if they followed us on twitter i can probably yeah. get a yes although that hasn't been uh, that hasn't been 100 percent either so you never really know yeah but you just have to like you just have to accept rejection and accept complete mm-hmm. complete non-response. I think we'd also been really lucky recently that a couple of bands have actually started to approach us to ask if we would be interested yeah. in interviewing them, which we greatly appreciate. Legit, anyone who wants mm-hmm. to be interviewed by us, like a hundred percent, we'd be very happy for you to contact us. It's like no issue with yeah, that please. whatsoever. <laughs> save us, save us some work. Yeah. yeah, we've had we've had a few bands reach out, which is also like first, it's cool to know that they like what we're doing and that. Because Jess's whole idea was to make something the metal community would enjoy, so if they're enjoying listening to the. That's great, uh, and also it just saves us a, a huge amount of time. <laughs> and those people are well, also you know, usually really reason- keen to talk to. They have lots of things to say, yeah. which is always really good for an interview. Oh, exactly. I mean, the whole reason I found out about you guys was because I was looking, uh, basically broadening my horizons. Came across everything on Spotify, and I feel like you guys have valuable conversations. You're learning something at the same time, but you're having fun with the podcast. Wait, you actually well. found us on Spotify? Yeah, like just by chance. That's cool. Yep. Oh wow, I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I was doing, but I um sometimes go down the rabbit hill and sometimes it's like fans also like and I just start hitting hitting buttons and then I see where I end up. Nice. So That's we're part connect. of the algorithm. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys have a you guys have a unique niche as well. Like you mm. you're very meticulous. You research the um all of the lyrics, I mean, down to the swear words, what uh, first or third person, like what what language they're in. It's it's quite I mean, to me, entertaining, but it's also valuable. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we're doing is kind of what we've been trained to do, um, but with a bit less, like we spend a bit less time on this than we did on, like for the paper we wrote, there was, the interviews took a lot longer to prepare. These are a bit more casual, which is nice. Um, like, you know, we don't, uh, 
but we do try to do a bit of a deep dive and obviously use some of the the skills that we have and the knowledge we have of what to look for. And as we've been doing it more and more, I think for our first interview, we spent like hours preparing the interview. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we weren't able to ask like half the questions. Uh, and we realized that in these kind of free flowing, we can just, you know, uh, be a bit more open about it. And I think we've both gotten a bit more confidence. Uh, so we know what to say when uh, things come up. We can think about questions in the fly a bit more. We know what people uh, will respond, yeah, respond just, to as well. Yeah, like, you know, you get a good idea yeah. for what's a good question that's going to elicit, like, a, a, you know, a, an interesting answer. So that yeah, kind of helps. Some questions have been cut because they flop. Mm. Uh, yeah, and it's weird. Like, like some things work. Like, uh, Jess was the one, I think, that came up with the idea about asking about uh, first and second person pronouns and stuff like that. And it just, the answers we got were really good. So we've kept, you know, focusing on that. Uh, the swear ring one, I keep thinking it's going to get boring, but they always say something that's kind of different. Um, I am bummed, though, that we haven't... I've, I've reached out to a few bands that swear a lot, and none of them have, have said yes. Like, I, I reached out to a few bands that, you know, are the really disgusting, gory, you know, like, just horrible f- filth. Um, it's fun, you know. It's fun. But they, none of them have said yes, so I've never been able to interview a band that's like, well, you do swear a lot. Why? And yeah. well, that's 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 what I'm sad about. So if you swear a lot that's and really uh, interesting. you want to be interviewed by us yeah. you're in a band, like, let us know. <laughs> yeah. If your lyrics are... Yeah. yeah. If you swear... If you have really... Well, we, we talked to Castrator. That was that was one that has yeah. kind of disgusting, True. violent lyrics. But that's the only one. So have you guys found um, certain, like, lyrical content or lyri- uh, specific themes out of certain countries or within certain like metal subgenres i would say so like at least in like uh, the research that we've been working on um you know for our academic articles and stuff like that has uh, kind of at least identified to me um some interesting patterns uh, across different countries like for instance they found that uh because the taiwanese metal scene is kind of um centered around phonic um the band and uh is like I'd say just about every band um, in Taiwan seems to have about two to six degrees of separation with Freddie Lim, the vocalist of Thonic. Uh, I think as a result of that and his kind of um, political position and influence has uh, meant that a lot of the bands, um, you know, do tend to focus a lot on like Taiwanese history, mythology, uh, but also issues regarding like Taiwanese independence. That's a pretty common theme that comes up in a lot of the, you know, lyrics that I've um, you know, had a look at recently from Taiwan. And then, yeah, in the Indonesian context, um, I'd say, yeah, similarly, there's a lot um, of, like, lyrical content that pertains to, like, uh, particular mythologies, um, like Indigenous mythologies within Indonesia. Uh, so, for instance, when I talk to a band called um, that's known as Jasad, um, which means bodies in Sundanese, um, and a lot of their uh, lyrics have to do with Sundanese mythology, specifically um and you know a lot of that comes from like traditional Sundanese texts and things like that so I think like yeah like metal bands from like I think just about every country that we've um yeah studied so far seem to uh, quite often have like you know their own kind of local mythologies that they draw on when producing lyrics that's that's pretty common I'd say in Japan, you have an issue of um, whether or not to speak, sing in English has been kind of a, a contentious debate position for a while. And people are starting to sing more in Japanese um, and be okay with it. And that's like some interesting differences there. Uh, that scene's a bit more um, varied, I think, than some of the, the scenes Jess was talking about, just in terms of how long it's been around and the style. So you do have like bands talking about Japanese myth, but you also have just like, um, like shout out to the band uh, Hellhound, which just makes like 1980s 
metal with absolutely it, it's it's really really like lame but in the best way and it's it's a wonderful and like there's songs like like die for metal and like uh what was it hail to the throne of the kings of heavy metal mm-hmm. and stuff every single song title has the word metal in it and it's just over the top and great and they're just you know having a blast um so they you know japan's got all that diversity and we've also like we've seen in australia though that a lot of bands don't like to swear because it's like something that they do in their day-to-day life so it has no impact or even some of them say like no that, I, so, someone said like no that's what americans do right yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. one interview i think i remember hearing yeah. that yeah yeah so they're like yeah well, no, we're we're an australian like that's a that's an american thing yeah and i think we talked to some american bands that also just feel like it's kind of on its way out but then again we haven't talked to a band like um you know infinite annihilator or something which it's clearly not out for them right so yeah exactly yeah Maybe. i think like mm. um, just from somebody who's not educated in this uh, realm, but it seems like the the gore and the brutality of those lyrics are kind of moving into slam metal, whereas everything else mm-hmm. is kind of like pulling back, going into personal experience. Uh, sorry, personal experience or story. Yeah, I I think metal is. I don't want to say growing up, but or like maturing and growing up are loaded terms. But I think it's it's entering um, uh, a bit of a reflexive phase where uh, like maybe we don't all have to sing about murder, kind of thing. But there's always exceptions. Like, uh, you know, if you've listened to the podcast, I'm sure you know that pretty much every single episode, someone's like, you know, I'm not really interested in seeing about blood or gore. But, you know, when Cannibal Corpse does it, it's fine. Cannibal Corpse gets yeah. the mask. Yeah. It's, Cannibal <laughs> Corpse. it's like, yeah, right. Um, and like, it's true. There is there is artistry to it. Like, there's, there's a big difference between um, the quality of like a Cannibal Corpse or like a cattle decapitation. Black Dahlia murder, I think, all look at gore and murder in a way that has artistry that... Uh, I'm not going to name a specific band, but I'm sure we've all encountered, you know, acts that that maybe come at it with a bit less tact mm. uh, or mm-hmm. thought. Um, so the other the question of like how do you, it's 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 part of the genre's history, right? And it's not going to go away, and I don't think it should go away. But there's how people are thinking about it if they want to explore it in their lyrics uh, is something that seems to be a bit of um, uh, kind of something that the scene is reflecting on. Are um, lyrics something that you guys personally pay attention to when you're listening to music? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think like like most metalheads have the experience of like buying albums and like pulling out that lyric book and like having a gaze at those lyrics and stuff like that. So I think like that alone probably like is something that we can definitely connect with. And then obviously like as linguists, um, we are you know we do tend to pay a lot of attention to languages, uh, even in informal contexts or contexts where we aren't actively engaged in research. So. Uh, I mean, that's kind of like the origins of our interest in like, you know, pursuing this research project is just our own kind of informal anecdotal observations about language use in the metal that we consume, you know, um, as part of just our daily life. So, um, yeah, in some, yes, definitely interested in, <laughs> in lyrics. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, me and Jess are the same generation as, uh, or at least a generation, you know, um, behind some of the people we're interviewing. And that's all that, just like Jess said, the the getting buying the CD, pulling the lyric book out and reading it. I don't know if like metalheads now do that with, you know, I, like, I don't know Probably how many CDs not. they buy. Probably not. But like, I remember, you know, um, like I remember buying CDs and taking them like I, uh, cradle of filth Midian was the first one where I opened up and read the lyric book. I'm like, Oh shit. Like I cannot let my parents, uh, read this. Like they're not going to understand what, what Danny filth screaming, but like, there's no way they can find out what's on this record. I will be in so much trouble, <laughs> right? Like this, yeah, yeah, complete like this breakdown of of I have done. You know, I'm like I'm like 16, right? I'm like I have done a I have bad thing. I have I have accessed the the bad songs, right? And so that that's always been part of it for me. Like for 
the lyrics have always been part of the music. Um, and I've always liked it when bands, because uh, you, you can't ignore it in metal, right? If the lyrics are really mediocre, you can just be like, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's all screamed. But I do like it when I, I look at the lyrics and the band puts a lot of um, extra work into it. I think it adds something mm-hmm. to the to the ultimate package of the art form. Mm. Yeah, so does that mean like imitating animal sounds is kind of cheating for you guys? Uh, depends on my mood, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't think so necessarily. Like, I think that's still like a form of expression that's like just as mm-hmm. valid. It's another kind of semiotic, like meaning-making resource that uh, you know vocalists mm-hmm. are drawing on. So I wouldn't necessarily say that like you know that is cheating in any sense. Um, but you know, is there a lot that I can say about it? No, not me personally, because I don't really know a lot about what's yeah. involved in like producing those sounds. Um, but I imagine like somebody who's mm-hmm. a lot more expert in you know metal vocal production might be able to talk about that at length. You know? Yeah, I think they have importance with uh, two different levels as well. Mm. There's using the the vocal cords as like an instrument, and then there's telling a story, being able to be a good lyricist, a good mm-hmm. writer two completely separate things i think yeah yeah, yeah. Probably- and like i listen to um a lot of you know japanese metal where i can speak japanese just fine but i don't when they're screaming it or even when they're singing it the way they intonate things um doesn't match with my expectations so it's really hard for me to understand what they're saying i can still enjoy the sound of it so yeah like if you if you have a band and you squeal like a pig i'll give you a listen I'm, i might not listen to you every day but you know it's impressive i can't do it yeah give it a crack whatever is there any subject matter that pushes you guys away from a band? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Fair enough. I think like definitely um, anything that's like um, racist, like sexist, homophobic, transphobic, like anything just gross. Mm. Like I would categorize all of that together, bundle it together. It's just gross. That's uh, it's going to be not for me. I'd mm. say. Yeah. There's limits. Um uh, anything in in like the uh, NSBM, like I don't I don't need to hear pro Nazism in my I'm not interested in that. Like there's I don't need to listen to Burzum. Uh, like there's maybe in the 1980s when that was like the only black metal record you could find in your local store, sure. But there's so much good black metal out there. Like it, it, the, you don't have to, you know, uh, spend your time listening to someone who literally wishes that like my family was dead. <laughs> <laughs> to be blunt yeah that kind right? of stuff should stay yeah. in music period yeah um and yeah it gets like it's hard uh there's a there's a question of where the line is drawn right like uh one of my favorite songs um by which is by black dahlia murder is uh is is uh, involves sexual violence in the title and the lyrics and it's a reference to a scene in evil dead um and i really like the song but like it's it's kind of you know i don't it's embarrassing in a way because I don't like that content. I don't think that um, you need to be. Uh... There's a difference between like I've summoned a zombie and it's going to eat your head versus like here's a th- here's an actual bad thing that happens to people every day that I'm going to sing about. And I prefer the zombie eating your brain on that. Yeah, um, that's understandable. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the lyrics, they come with uh, explicit imagery and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's some things that you just don't wish upon people. So that's kind of generally the stuff I would avoid listening to. It's it's a hard line. Yeah. It's a hard line. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's like, a, like you, both of us. Again, yeah. I think you got to kind of ask yourself right. the question of like, you know, what's the value in pursuing those themes and why are you pursuing mm-hmm. them? Right. Like what's, what's that going, what's that about? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, because if, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Because if it is just about like, 
you know, I don't know, laughing at rape jokes and stuff like that. I'm not fucking around with it. It's not for me. Like, mm. yeah. And it's tricky. Like there's a, is horror a, a, a thing? Yeah. Is there value in exploring misery and darkness? I would say so. Um, but I mean, part of it again is you like looking up some of the stuff with the singers. If, if they're, you know, if they're saying like Jess is like, it's just a joke and I'm um, not really interested in that joke. Yeah. I can find someone else. Yeah. The one nice thing is that we do, we live in a place now where there's so much metal out there uh, and so much really great metal that uh it's you don't like it's not like losing the one band you know anymore um there's so many people doing really interesting things that you can kind of uh uh choose the ones that uh have a have a at least the thought process that's similar to yours in a way yeah you can more easily navigate it since like you know the yeah. onset of the internet like <laughs> yeah. if you yep. if you're worried yep. about a band you can just give them a quick google and you know, yeah. find out basically everything you would need to know to make an informed choice about whether <laughs> yeah, you want exactly. to support that band, you know? So mm-hmm. that makes it a lot easier, I think, than, you know, say 20 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Well, and you, as you guys touched on, metal is moving in a different direction. Um, a lot of people are, in a way, growing up. Mm. And I think, like, just in my personal experience, which is very limited, I've seen a huge surge of um, positive messaging in metal and mm. about personal struggle and overcoming, um, basically, adversity. Yeah, I mean, to me, metal's always been a bit about overcoming adversity and and being okay with independence and stuff. Uh, and I mean, we've had people tell us they've worked love songs in and stuff like that, and that's always kind of fun to see. A little bit of a, you know, how do I navigate a little bit of emotional awareness into a a, a metal track? Is I, I like to see people not feeling bound by the genre that we're supposed to find freedom in if that makes sense absolutely yep yeah i think like that's what we're kind of seeing now is people kind of like deconstructing what were like for a long time considered to be the kind of boundaries of what is and Mm. what isn't metal i think that's why we often like ask the question like to um you know all of our interviewees like what do you consider to be metal and non-metal and increasingly we get the response that like you know there isn't necessarily like a clear distinction anymore because you know the um, you know, the definition of metal is kind of ever expanding. People are exploring a lot more, uh, you know, themes and ideas that weren't previously present in, you know, your average metal lyrics. Mm-hmm. We've had interviews like um, we talked to uh, Stevie of Inferi. Uh, he has a project where he did a song about like, uh, it's an entire album, sorry, built around like Full Metal Alchemist. Um, and we're, uh, you know, knock on wood that it doesn't somehow fall through, but in two days we're talking to no tomorrow. Sorry. We're talking to a band that has all their lyrics built around the Simpsons. Um, and it awesome. rules their that rules. It absolutely kicks so much ass. Um, and it's so metal the way that they do it. Like it just feels metal. But you know, I think if I was in, in high school and all edgy and they're like, can you make, you know, the Simpsons metal? But like, no, that's a jokey show. I mean, I love the Simpsons, but you know, like it's not metal. Right. But you can make it metal. You can make anything metal. I think now. Um, yep. Yeah, I had a Japanese interview too. I asked them this and they said, you know, metal is just being, if you think you're metal, you are. And I was like, yeah, all right. I, I kind of, that's the kind of perspective I think that I've come around to um, as I've gotten, you know, older. It's more like a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that we've heard a lot of. Like, actually, like a mate of mine that we interviewed like way back when, about an, a year ago or something like that, was saying that like he reckons that like metal has almost nothing to do with like, you know, music or lyrics. It has all to do with just the vibe or like the feeling. Like, which, I don't know if I'm 100% on board with that definition, but it's an interesting idea, though, to think about, like, how, like, metal is becoming mm. a little bit less, like, tangible as a concept than it used to be. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would say like mm-hmm. there definitely are like set like it is a genre of music. It has sounds that we associate with it versus like hip hop or like country. So I don't want to say like metal is like a a feeling, but maybe it is in some ways. You know. Well, I mean, there's so many different um in like intersections of all their genres, and now they're ex- like musician. Sorry, musicians are exploring different um different types of music mm. and injecting that into their metal too. So I just see everything kind of growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I like I, when they overlap and they they approach genres that they don't usually mix. Um, I think that's really cool. Uh, bands that like put metal with other stuff like uh, Diablo Swing Orchestra, um, like metal and orchestral and like big band circus stuff, and uh, um, Zeal and Adore mixing it with like spirituals and stuff like that. Just these two genres I would never imagine jamming together. It's really cool when they like work when someone's taking the time to make them work because I think anything could, you know. Uh, I haven't heard like metal. Con- well, is there metal country? I don't think so. I don't know. I can't think of any metal country bands off the top of my head. I'm not sure that I'd listen to it right away, though. I guess it's like metal adjacent stuff. Like, I don't know if you'd classify mm. as like King King Dude, for instance, as like metal. But like, I guess that's probably mm. the closest thing that like just off the dome I can kind of recall. But yeah. Hmm. Again, I think that's. So, I mean, yeah, it's a harder. Yeah. Years ago, I had a friend that uh, mentioned um, like pop music, but done with like Cannibal Corpse lyrics. Mm. Oh. I couldn't, I can't find the artist, but it was. Oh, quite I mean, interesting. that's everywhere in Japan. That's easy to find in Japan. Uh, I've been, I've been way like this is super embarrassing, but I've been getting really into ka- kawaii metal over the last year. Uh, it's like the, it's really weird because I like Stockholm syndrome myself into liking it. I think uh, <laughs> there's this band called Broken by the Scream, and the first time I heard them, I literally messaged some friends, being like, "This is like the most." obnoxious thing i've ever heard and now i it was uh i think my fourth on my spotify rap last year so i've uh, ironically listened to it to the point that i sincerely enjoy it and it's, it's literally just j-pop mixed with um like extreme metal like i know baby metal is pretty famous but this is like um literally two of the singers do j-pop vocals and then two just like scream bloody murder into the microphones like absolute brutal death metal stuff and i've I I love it. I would not recommend anyone listen to it, but I I, I absolutely think it's great. <laughs> I'm definitely gonna have to take a listen to that stuff too. Um, do you guys notice that um, there's a lot of like very brutal death metal coming out of Japan? Yeah, there's Japan's doing uh, Japan's doing some interesting stuff. Yeah, uh, their grindcore scene is is extremely active, especially. Um, hmm. And yeah, I mean they've been Japan's been doing uh, death metal uh, since like the 80s. Um, they've had not as much black metal, uh, and I don't see a lot of proggy stuff, but it's there. It's just, uh, a bit under, but they've been, yeah. I mean, they just haven't had a, uh, an act like Thonic that's made it overseas really, uh, which is too bad, but I don't know what the, what the difference is, but, um, you know, you get these, these acts from like France or Australia or here and there that pop up and go overseas and Japan hasn't really had one, which is it quality wise. I don't, I don't see why. Hmm. Um, you said earlier that uh, the Japanese, um, there's a debate whether to sing in Japanese or English. Is that partly because um, originally metal was influenced heavily by North America? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's this idea that, um, and I need to unpack this a bit more uh, and revisit some of the data, but basically what I can see is that uh, there's an idea initially that metal is English, so you have to sing in English. Uh, and there are even people that like kind of fought over it. Uh, even rock was like, if you're a rock band, you need to sing in English, you can't sing in Japanese. And people started pushing back against that. Um, and then also there was kind of an impression that if you don't sing in 
English, no one overseas will listen to you, uh, which I don't think was correct, but it was an impression that existed. Uh, but now they've mm. seen, thanks to bands like Athonic, thanks to bands like, well, Rammstein, uh, obviously, um, uh, bands that do sing in other languages other than English, having really, really massive success. Uh, Japan's bands have kind of been like, oh, okay, um, you know, we don't have to. Uh, but some of them want to still. Uh, some of them like it. Uh, others of them mix both. They go back and forth. Um, and others do purely Japanese for, you know, a variety of reasons. There's no, like, one, uh, you know, it's not like, it's not like Japan! raw uh there's a there's a lot of complex reasons why that they use japanese um and some just like like, like, i don't know how to speak english like i'm not gonna use mediocre english i want to all use japanese that i know and other people say like i'm you know we have a samurai theme and other people just say i didn't think about it uh so it's just quite a lot of ideas going on yeah similar things are happening like i'd say in like taiwan and indonesia maybe more so in indonesia than taiwan like just because of like yeah phonics influence in taiwan i'd say it's a bit more common to not use english um because phonic is obviously like you know, popularize the idea of, um, you know, singing in Taiwanese. And so there are quite a lot of Taiwanese bands that then like absolutely have written lyrics in Taiwanese. Um, and yeah, the pressure to use English, I'd say, isn't as great there. There are still, of course, bands that do um, write lyrics uh, in English or at least have English versions of Taiwanese lyrics, um, as Thonic certainly does. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in Indonesia, there seems to be a lot more of that like discourse around whether or not it's appropriate to use uh, Indonesian languages or English, um, because yeah, they've um, echoed a lot of the sentiments that Wes has just discussed, um, you know, emanating from Japan, whereby um, yeah, a lot of people are concerned about whether or not their um, you know their lyrics are going to be accessible to international audiences if they write in Indonesian languages. And there's this idea if you write in English, then that's going to be easier to you know send overseas. Um, that being said, though, I think that may slowly be like changing. There are certainly bands that do write in um, Indonesian na- languages, not even just like the the national language, which is most commonly spoken, um, but also yeah, more um, yeah, more um, how would you say um, yeah, just just other kind of um, in Indonesian they're called like ethnic languages, so languages that are specific to like okay. particular ethnic groups and stuff. So um, you know, like Javanese or Sundanese. Um, Languages like that are more increasingly being used. Even like older forms of those languages are, are also starting to appear as well. And the kind of uh, rationale for that seems to be that, um, you know, uh, kind of a reflexive process of um, like a lot of Indonesian uh, vocalists thinking about how they first got into metal and how like the difficulties they encountered when trying to access English lyrics and saying like, well, if I had to go through the process of kind of like looking at lyrics that I didn't understand and trying to translate them into a language that, I was familiar with maybe fans overseas listening to my lyrics in Indonesian can go through that same process, even if they aren't familiar with Indonesian. So yeah, I'd say that's, that's maybe where it's hmm. going. Interesting. It seems like metal would be one of the most accessible uh, forms of music for somebody to speak in whatever language they prefer. Yeah. I mean, I don't even, when it comes to like death metal and, and stuff, you listen to a Japanese death metal band or like a Japanese grindcore band. You don't know what language they're singing in. Like, at all i mean it obviously depends on how how um you know intelligible it is but like some of the grindcore stuff some of the brutal death metal stuff like you you, there's no way you're picking out a word in any language uh unless you've got a really good ear so you know uh it's like a bonus you look up lyrics if you're interested in i do think that uh one thing that's hampering a lot of the bands in these scenes from international success is kind of accessibility and that a lot of them have really really bad uh online presence like very, mm-hmm. very, very weak. A lot of the Japanese websites are 
atrocious, like GeoCities 90s kind of level quality. Um, and in Japan, you know, when you buy like a Cannibal Corpse record or something, they often come with like a translated lyric book. And it's really hard to get like, if you are into the Japanese band, you want to get access to the lyrics. It's really hard to do so. Um, and I'm, you know, that's true in uh, the other scenes as well. So as long as there's that kind of barrier to access to the people that want to look up lyrics and people want to know, okay, what am I actually listening to? Um, that's, that's a bit of a hamper and it's a bit unfortunate that, uh, there's a lot of, a little bit more effort put into putting yourself out there. Their Twitter presence is usually pretty good, but like their websites are just a disaster, uh, like broken links, you know, um, stores that don't have anything in them, uh, really really uh an upgrade that way i think could really in- help accessibility which would ideally you know benefit the bands as well for kind of their outreach it's interesting that you touch on accessibility too uh, specifically in japan because um one of my previous guests rav uh from ravenous he's um the vocalist of a power metal band here from calgary mm-hmm. um he mentioned that when they were producing their album for overseas that their uh, label actually required them to do at least one Japanese single for them to uh, be distributed over there. Yeah. That's cause um, that's like a, a, a weird thing where uh, basically the labels over there don't want to be undercut by the, it's cheaper to get, it's often cheaper. I don't know about now with, with the shipping problems, but it used to be cheaper, cheaper to get like the version of the CD mailed from America to Japan than to buy it in Japan. Uh, so in hmm. order to get people to buy the Japanese pressings, they'd put bonus tracks on them. So like almost every single metal album in Japan has a bonus track to like make it worth it. And then also usually they'll have a, um, an insert with like a translation of the lyrics, uh, depending on of course the band, but those are the kind of things that like make it worth the extra cost. That's also a good way to spark collecting overseas, like where we don't get the Japanese tracks. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. I like so, that. Yeah, I like Spotify's kind of ruined that a bit, right? Because you can just find the oh, there's the bonus track, click. Yeah. But it used to be like, yeah, I remember in high school trying to be like, oh, I want the Japanese version because it has like a bonus track that, you know, probably they spent like ten minutes on. But it was, you know, it, it is a little thing for collectors, sure. It's just like Magic cards. The first time I ever saw those in a different language, I started scooping them up. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll do it. I mean, if you want, yeah, if you want to collect uh, expensive, shiny things, that's a uh, that's a hobby. Probably list, yeah. <laughs> Top of the list, yeah. Little pieces of cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so next on the list of things here, you guys were are working on a book here. Uh, when is that to be released, and uh, what what's your direction with it? That's first first question is kind of scary. Uh, it was I mean it was supposed to be we we're supposed to have a a contract by end of last year, but we we didn't get around to it. <laughs> 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 Unfortunately, the schedule is a little bit tight with uh, you know teaching yeah. and all the other diverse research projects we're working on. But <laughs> and you know dealing with uh, the last two years of uh, that too. And that yeah. Uh, ideally, we'd we'd have um, a contract signed and a few chapters written by the end of this year, and then the book itself would com- would be like in the publisher's hands um, early next year. Uh, it's it's both of us writing it. So it should be easier than, than a full book. Uh, but there's a lot of kind of, you know, things need to happen. I'm trying to right now, what I'm trying to do. And I think Jess as well is like basically get our schedules and responsibilities cleared by like Feb. Yeah. So that all we have on the list is teaching and then we'll just start working on it. Uh, we have all the data, like we're ready to go. We just need to find the time to write it. 
Well, fair enough. And so what other kind of stuff are you guys involved in, with right now? Quite a lot. <laughs> that's not too broad <laughs> no, of a no, question. No. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, Wes, you want to go first? I was saying you go first. You've got the, you've got the, um, the diverse list, I think. Yeah, I, so I'm involved with about like, I don't know, I want to say like five projects at the minute. Um, so yeah, some of it's my own research, just expanding on, um, yeah, my PhD work, um, looking at uh, Chinese, Indonesian language and identity. Um, but I'm and like looking as well at um, some of the media representation of uh, Chinese-ness um, since um, the movement of the Indonesian capital um, from Jakarta to Kalimantan has um, yeah, started to take place. Um, yeah, I'm doing some other research hmm. looking at the reasons for which uh, students in Australia quit or continue their studies of Auslan, which is Australian Sign Language. Um, and some other research looking at uh, the, like, what I'm contributing to kind of looks at uh, the uh, quality of deafblind interpreting services in Australia. Um, and um, also doing some other research, yeah, collaborating with some um, scholars here and in the UK, uh, looking at how we can use um, what's called the Linguistic Landscape Project um, to assist with multilingualism teaching, um, particularly in like uh, international collaboration settings. So basically when we're trying to teach students from both Australia and UK at the same time about like things to do with multilingualism and multilingual societies and kind of tying that in with other issues like social justice related issues. Um, yeah, I think that's basically everything I'm working on. I've started collaborating as well with another scholar on um, some work on the history of Australian gesture as well. So, like, a bunch of stuff to, mostly to do with um, Australia at the minute, but, yeah, obviously some other projects, like, growing um, in the Asia sphere as well with Wes and some of my own work as well. Yeah, and you've got your own book, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually. So it was my own book that I've got to kind of, like, get going on, like, <laughs> that's, um, yeah, based on some of my work. Um, with my PhD and some of my work since then. So, yeah, I've got plenty of stuff to keep me going for the next, yeah. like, five years or something as it, as it stands. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of never-ending. Um, I fortunately don't have that much diversity at the moment. Things are a bit stable, but uh, uh, I have uh, two articles that are going to come back from review sometime this year that I'll have to deal with. Uh, there's a, a special issue that I helped uh, edit and kind of organize um, on variation in forms of writing, forms of language play that only exist in writing. So like emoji, script, font, stuff like that, uh, that has like five articles in it that's just finishing up um, and getting that all the way through, uh, dealing with the, the editors and the layout and stuff like that. Um, I have a book chapter reviewing like all the research to date on language use, study of language use in Japanese media, uh, so like an overview of what's been done and what what's good, what's bad, uh, that has to be out by July. But again, I want to get all this done by like Feb. Um, and then uh, a project on the TV show Agretsuko, which kind of, again, metal Japanese language, which was going to be me and one other person, but now it's me and two other people probably. So that's... Uh, I, again, that was one of the things that was going to be out last year, but now it's going to probably come out later this year uh so as that develops we'll see where that goes but the goal is yeah we want to we have this data we can't keep sitting on it so we need to uh figure out time to sit down and work on it but hopefully once this semester starts um yeah we'll have the time because 
it should i feel like it, it'll write itself fairly easy but it won't write itself without us making time for it yeah well a lot of it's in the old nog right but it's just like yeah. not on paper yet mm-hmm. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah if we could just like sit down and talk about it for a bit yeah and publish that that'd be great oh and we have a we have a collaborative um we're, we're turning one of our lingo britannica mm. interviews into like a annotated interview for uh, a journal so that's another thing we have to do by and that's not that's by oh, that's feb cool. yeah uh, not by our our deadline, but by the actual journal's deadline. So we got to get yeah, on yeah, that. Yeah, crack that out. Yeah. So how do you guys stay organized with so much stuff going on and so much pressure? It seems. Yeah, she's so got like actual. I fully habits. like yeah. So this year in particular, because I, I usually write everything on paper, but the issue with that is like I didn't really organize those papers, so it's just like a plethora of papers just like spinning around my office at any one time. So. To combat that issue, I've started like doing bullet journaling. Like in, I have like a research bullet journal, and I have a daily bullet journal to keep like all of my like projects kind of, um, or at least the notes relevant to all my different projects organized, so I can find them more easily when it comes time to you know write up an article or something like that. So that's certainly been for me at least for the last couple of months like very very useful as a strategy. And I just try to keep it all in my head, which. Um, that constantly results in minor disasters but <laughs> yeah not very well uh no major disasters uh but certainly a number of minor disasters so when i stop being stubborn and stupid uh i will also begin bullet journaling or something like that uh and keep better track of things yeah. and so with lingua brutalica is that is this more of an open-ended project then or are you guys going to continue this for as long as you enjoy it yeah as long as we enjoy it so- and there's interest i think it's you know I don't think it takes like too much from us. It's it's largely, I'd say, mm. like although certainly it is research adjacent, um, and therefore like relevant mm-hmm. to our professional lives and stuff. I'd say that it's mostly like a passion project. I'd say, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that I'm still getting getting like a lot of joy out of just like participating in it and producing it and things like that. So, if that continues, which I anticipate that it will, I assume, then yeah, there's uh, yeah no specific end date for it. So. Mm. I think we'll continue it as long as we still enjoy it. Yeah. Kind of. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not impossible that we can... Some of the interviews with the Aussies uh, will be in the book because we're going to have a chapter on Australia. And there are ways, like, uh, my university allows for uh, recognition of non non-traditional research outputs. So it is possible that, uh, like, sometime next year, I could sit down and fill out the long form and be like, count this as research. And maybe they'll say yes. And that means that, you know... I actually get the university actually recognizes it because it is research in a way, yeah. mm-hmm. not in a way it is research. It absolutely is. Um, but it is, it is ultimately a, a passion project. Like right now it's just a, a thing that we do um, and we enjoy doing. And as long as, as long as, it stays, as long as it stays fun, I think as long as it stays interesting, as long as people keep uh, being interested in it, then as long as people keep wanting to talk to us. Yeah. Good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When you guys are conducting research, um, and this is just a personal mm. preference type thing, I'm just wondering, um, do you guys use like Excel or like Word? What kind of um, programs do you use to kind of organize that? All it depends stuff a lot on the kind of research and the kind yeah. of data that you're working with. Like, um, okay. I use, oh, sorry, yeah. I was just going to say, like, so, like, because I've done research with like um, 
interactional data, like so actual recorded conversations and stuff. Um, I've used things like um, Elan, um, which is like a program that allows you to like input audio recordings or video recordings and then transcribe, um, you know, the interaction like on a number of different lines and stuff like that and add, you know, various layers of detail, including like interlinear glosses, which is basically when you do like a word by word breakdown of what people have said and then you classify those words into different word classes and stuff. Like that kind of hmm. like that kind of program and stuff is quite helpful in linguistics often, particularly when you're using like, yeah, that kind of interactional data. Um, otherwise, yeah, um, I guess Envivo is another program that I use quite often. Envivo, mm, um, yeah, yeah that, that's particularly for our research um, on metal lyrics and stuff. Envivo has been, you know, invaluable to me, I'd say, because uh, it allows you to kind of just take um, like screen captures um, of websites and stuff where we found, you know, the lyrics um, to, you know, songs from various bands and stuff. And then you can kind of like collect them all together in one spot um, and then like go through and do all this kind of coding and stuff that like allows you to just more easily kind of organize the patterns that you might have observed more anecdotally. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that kind of thing hmm. I think is like those two programs in particular, I think like have been super helpful. Yeah. And then of course, yeah, you, you've got to use, you know, things like Excel or, and Word yeah. and stuff. Naturally. I've never used Excel for research actually. I have for quant um, stuff, not for qual stuff. Like quantitative research, like obviously yeah. Excel is valuable for that, but um, not for so much for qual. I've used it through Word to make tables, but that's about it. But yeah, I'm just also very bad with Excel. But yeah, Word, I mean, yeah, we always do Word. We take notes on Word. Um, uh, and then NVivo, yeah, like I think every single project I've done in the last few years has involved NVivo. Like I do a lot of um, like dialogue from comic books, dialogue from TV shows that I analyze. So I like, you know, type it all into the program, code every single word, and then I can actually like observe the data in, in ways. It's a, it's a great program for what, kind of what yeah. we do. Uh, and then there's stuff like Zotero, which like my entire, oh, everything yeah. I've ever read is in this thing called Zotero. Um, and that allows me to draw on, you know, these sources so I don't forget them. Cause otherwise I would have no idea what I read like five years ago, but like I, I have, they're all keyworded with little notes and quotes and stuff like that. So I can, go in there or at least you know uh even just searching the titles find stuff that might be relevant so i can read it again if i need to yeah um, makes writing a reference i saw someone on twitter easier. saying that they yeah i saw someone on twitter being like am i the only person that doesn't use zotero and just does everything by hand and like you waste an hour five thousand people liked it <laughs> yeah and i was like like this is the most offensive like <laughs> content i've seen this is the this is the i've seen a lot of stuff on twitter i disagree with but this is probably the take that i am most like vehemently just do not understand. Just what's the point though? Like, uh, what are you gaining there? Like, yeah. like you're literally wasting your own time. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Zotero is probably, I don't know if, if Zotero like just pulled its support for its products and deleted them all. I'd probably just quit academia. I don't think I'd have the, uh, <laughs> it basically means like rather than writing a full reference list or bibliography for whatever you're writing, like Zotero will just insert yeah. it for you automatically. So it saves you like hours. Yeah, and it's also yeah. it just it lets you remember what you read. Yeah, right. Like, you know, how am I supposed to remember everything I read? It's impossible. I've read so much I don't stuff. Know how I've, else I've you read like keep stock of that. Like, yeah. without Zotero. Yeah, I guess well, especially as time goes on, there's so much content yeah. to go yeah. through, and I mean, with every subject, it's almost limitless at this point. Yeah, and like some things you get, like you get a PDF of, especially when you work in other languages, like you mm -hmm. get research from Japan or whatever, and so it's like you get a scanned PDF of this Japanese article, and if the only place you have it is like on a USB or something, and you lose it, well then. You're never going to find it again. You don't know what mm -hmm. the name of it is. But if it's in your Zotero database, you'll be like, oh, yeah, 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 that article. Yeah, okay. I, I took notes on that, right? It's like, and it's stored in the cloud and everything like that. So, yeah. Shout out, shout out to Zotero. Yeah. <laughs> Sponsor us, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> 
Fred wears our character. Yeah. <laughs> Stickers and a t-shirt. I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, man. So through all this, um, all, all, all the studying that you've done through um, meta language, is there something that you guys have found that has surprised you or something that's not at all expected? Hmm. We've had a few people say that they don't want to offend anyone, which I thought it was always kind of weird. Um, yeah. Like, I guess I've come around to understand it because they're not like trying to offend um, because they don't, they assume that people that would be offended aren't going to listen. So the idea is to create like, like they don't want to actually offend anybody. They just make music that is offensive. And initially in my mind, that was kind of a, a contradiction, but I've, I've come around to understanding it a bit more. Um, Obviously it's impossible. Uh, You know, when you think about killing people and, and murder and, and stuff and say fuck and shit, you're going to offend somebody, but again, how, how often is that person going to actually access? Like they're, they're making the music for the people that come to the shows. They're not making the music for the people that would be offended by it. So yeah, I guess that was one thing that I kind of um, was a bit surprised by and, and have sort of rechanged my thinking about the purpose of some of these quote unquote offensive lyrics. Um, like obviously when a band names themselves dying fetus, they're, they're trying to, you know, Elicit some it, sort of reaction. Make some sort of reaction, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but outside of that initial like shock, right? Um, they're not singing their songs for the people that like. They're not singing songs for like the PMRC, right? Mm. Um, they're singing songs for dying fetus fans. So, uh, and a lot of bands we listen to obviously don't have his names that are as confrontational as you know, dying fetus, infinite annihilator, uh, fuck, I'm dead, right? Those kind of bands. Like, all right, yeah, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Like, you're, you're, we got it. There's a statement there, but. Beyond those those initial statements, um, when I was a kid, I was thought like they're trying to offend, right? They're trying to go against the grain, and in a way, they are going against the grain. But uh, a lot of people are, are who in metal are actually very very conscious of making lyrics that would not offend or shock their fans, um, and that was something that that I think uh, did yeah surprise me. Yeah, hmm. I think for me maybe like I don't know if it surprised me as much as I found it like really interesting and hadn't really thought about it before was like. Mm. Um, how there seems to be this kind of um, dichotomy between people that um, feel that their lyrics are absolutely very clearly connected to who they are as people and the are expression of their own experiences, you know, as you were saying before, versus people that are like, no, my lyrics have nothing to fucking do with me. Like, I like my lyrics, like, are a separate entity um, and represent a completely different experience to my own personal experience. Um, that, like, kind of, like, really stark contrast is something that I guess mm. um, I had noticed but not really commented on actively, like, you know, in my own kind of musings about metal and stuff. I think, yeah, on a, mm-hmm. I think that was, that's probably the biggest one. I think maybe, like, along similar lines, um, yeah, maybe people that, like, um, either, yeah, I suppose that would be the main one, actually. Like, come to think of it, yeah, I think that's that's probably the, name, the main one. Mm. it's interesting that you mentioned the contrast between those uh attitudes because um that's shared in like all subgenres of metal too it's mm. not just like death or doom or totally. stoner metal kind of thing it's it's interesting yeah hmm. and there are people that try to blend it of course right like yeah blend their you know mostly mostly they're telling a story they're trying to take distance from but there's parts of who they are kind of worked in there um and that's always very interesting because it seems to be quite tricky to do and it also seems like some of their approaches change over time. Like they'll grow from using uh, more profanity into 
something that's a little bit more, uh, like we said earlier, a little bit more grown up in certain ways. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's kind of related. I was going to say, like, more mature. this isn't really like a big thing, but like something that I did find, I guess, again, interesting is that like, you know, that same kind of like, um, you know, dichotomy that we just discussed is like similar to another which we've observed, which is like between people that use like really archaic, like specialist terminology and I'd say like quite standard, mm. like complex language and others who are like almost entirely monosyllabic in their like, you know, language production and stuff like that. So like, you know, using like just really simple everyday language, like, and mm-hmm. like, you know, I think there are like arguments in support of like both approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just interesting to see that level of diversity, even within, you know, um, lyrics produced in one language. Mm-hmm. Oh, we've also had some people tell us that they can't, they don't think they can do metal in their, in the languages that they speak at home, mm-hmm. which always surprised me a little bit. Like some mm-hmm. don't do it for a reason, but I, I think it was cytotoxin said something like, uh, no, German, we can't do, it just would sound silly. And I was like, okay, like, I, I don't understand why, uh, especially, you know, there are, there are metal bands in German, but for them, there's like, nah. Yeah. That, that was, that was a surprising answer to me. I think we had similar things with Convent. Like, um, I think Convent yeah. said that like uh, Danish was like a bit too personal. And actually, yeah, come to think of it now, like I did hear similar things from some of the Indonesian bands that I interviewed, mm-hmm. like saying like, um, you know, like if I use like, you know, my like regional or ethnic language, like that's a little bit too personal. That's a bit too familiar. Like I'd rather use like either the national language or English because um, you can kind of distance yourself from the content, the lyrics a bit more easily in that in that sense. Well, even with um uh, Beyond Creation, uh, they they told us they were using, you know, they were using um uh, formal French instead mm. of Quebecois. Um, and I th- if I remember right, his reason was uh, something about like wanting to show, like he, he viewed it as more, like literary and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but those kind of ideas of of uh, choosing not to sing in the language that you speak day to day is is I wouldn't say it's surprising, but it's something I find very always quite interesting. Yeah. Um, well, because it relates to the exact thing I was just mentioning about like people either yeah. trying to use like you know really specialist like you know academic language versus like very everyday language. It seems that people you know tend to fall into like you know one of two camps there where people are like, no, I want to have like lyrics that represent the way I would speak like conversationally and people that are like, no, I want to get as far away from that as I can, you know, use something that you'd never see in everyday conversation. Yeah. And that kind of brings us like metal as a place to, and that's kind of honestly the the theme of the book mm. hopefully is, is metal as a space for exploring language. Like it's a place where people can make decisions about language that they would not make in their day-to-day lives. Even if that decision is I will use my day-to-day language as a statement. Um, it, it's a place that, that this stuff, because you can't, um, you know, you can't like text people in like cradle of filth lyrics, right? It was, no one's going <laughs> to, you can't, <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's, you can, but you can, you can, but there are consequences. Um, yeah, exactly. That, that, Especially if it's at work. Right. Yeah. Right. There are consequences to writing all your emails in cradle of filth style prose that you don't, that, that don't exist or are inverted when you write your metal lyrics in cradle of filth style prose. What's on your current uh, rotation? Current rotation. Oh, let me yeah, let's get out boot up Spotify, Spotify here. <laughs> yeah, let's get on my Spotify. Uh, so I've been listening to a lot of Japanese metal because I'm still working on projects with that. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, some things that I've really liked. Uh, there's a, a band called Flitigious Idiosyncrasy and the Dilapidation. Uh, and their singer is a side project called Monier, and that's really, really good. Uh, there's a band. Um, I talked about Gotsu Totsukotsu. Uh, Kandarivas is a really interesting grindcore band that combines like grindcore with uh traditional japanese drums um which is pretty cool 
Uh, again, like you know, one minute songs. But if that's your thing, uh, there's a Amelia is a band that has. Uh, it's not a style I normally like, but I I I like what they do. Um, it is a bit poppy. Uh, for outside of that though, I've I've really liked the uh, the last Spectral Wound album. Uh, was really good. I've been listening to that a lot. Um, uh, the n- latest Archspire was was excellent. Um, and obviously, everyone that has talked to us on Brutalingo Brutalica is fantastic, and their albums are amazing. And I listen to all those all the time. Uh, and then I guess one more Japanese shout out. There's a there's a Japanese um, black gaze band called uh, Kokeshi, and they've released one EP, and it's like five songs long. And I think it's probably the one of the best like first albums, first EPs I've I've heard. Uh, and if you like black gaze at all that's just it's just fantastic I, I i cannot wait to see what their first album is like because if they can do this with their first ever attempt at like a record they've got so much promise for something really cool awesome i'll keep an eye out for those guys for sure yeah and i think for for me like yeah similarly i think like just as a product of like working on um you know research in the region um i have been listening to a few taiwanese bands that i've really enjoyed like uh, crescent lament uh and burning island um, both of whom focus a lot on uh, Taiwanese history uh, and mythology, as I mentioned before, is that's quite a common, if not ubiquitous, kind of theme. Um, and yeah, what else? I've also like yeah, obviously been listening to some Indonesian bands as well, like Noxa and um, Jasad. So the death metal and uh, kind of grindcore, which are, I'd say maybe the dominant subgenres uh, in Indonesia. Um, yeah, they're both excellent. Um, and what else? I more locally, of course, um, got to support Hybrid Nightmares. Um, <laughs> um, as absolutely, yeah, Hybrid Nightmares is, is a massive one. That's a local Melbourne band. Um, as is Harlot. Um, they've both been on the podcast as well, and they've been wonderful. So, yeah, they're always Earthrot. Yeah, Earthrot. It's a it's a good one as well. Got to got to shout out the locals. Yeah, shout out to Aussie metal in general. Actually, yeah. um, I I was very ignorant of it when I came here. I didn't like. I, I don't think I'd listen to a single one. But uh, the amount of uh, really amazing metal coming out of Australia is excellent. So if you're listening to this and you haven't explored some of the stuff, like there's everything, everything under the sun, all kinds of genres, and all being done at a really high quality. Yeah, and definitely. I would have to agree to that. My first uh, my first Australian guests were um, Grant and Dmac from Zeolite, and so their episode I think is coming up next week. Oh, cool. Um, okay. But they were pretty cool to talk to, and then and then they pushed me in the direction of some other Aussie bands. So I've been slowly getting mm. uh, my knowledge up there. It's it's pretty interesting. There's there's a wide variety coming from. I don't want to say a small country, but like generally, there's only yeah. five or six areas you can. We're big from. in terms of geography, small in terms of population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, one thing is, I think a lot of people don't even know bands are Australian because it's not like you yeah. know with the Japanese band. It's like oh, they're singing Japanese, or oh, it's an Indonesian band. They're singing Indonesian. Like in Australian band, they're just singing in English because it's mm-hmm. not like it's not like there's an Aussie accent in death metal right nope uh yeah at times death metal kind of unifies the english accent into one sound <laughs> uh but yeah it's it is unfortunate because it, it if people listen to it without being aware that it's coming from a scene it i think they should check it out because there's a lot of really really great stuff uh like uh like the bands we're talking to uh this week and next week too so yeah, yeah exactly. uh yeah some good stuff big fan are those um those are new episodes coming out for you guys uh, assuming the interviews don't fall through, yeah. <laughs> nice, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing them. And uh, my last question here is: uh, Who are some of the first bands, uh, metal bands, that you guys got into? Oh, dude, I had like the most boring, like normal 
like 1980s middle class white American pathway into metal. Like I started listening to, I got into music. Like I started liking music through like pop punk stuff like The Offspring, and then I jumped into new metal. So it was Corn and um, System of a Down and Rage Against the Machine and a lot of bands that I I don't listen to anymore except for well Rage Against the Machine and System still you know they get a bit of play. Uh, Slipknot you know was probably the band of my high school, um, and then. I stumbled across uh, Cradle Filth's Midian I mentioned. That was like a huge, like, oh, okay, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a bass totally guitar teacher realm. that was into industrial music. So he got me into like Ministry and Skinny Puppy and stuff. And that kind of opened that realm. And then um, this is like so lame um, and such a poser answer. But the real the real gate coming down was going into a hot topic. And they had a MTV Headbangers Ball two album compilation disc and the first half was all new metal stuff that i knew and liked but it was all in one album right and the second was all these bands i hadn't heard of i was like arch enemy mashuga you know strapping young lad what the hell is this oh well whatever free cd right um and then i i I bought it so i put it in my record player and i think the first track was um stranga from nothing by mashuga and just like i i remember i i sat in my car I, i i it came on when i got home and i turned my car off and i played it like four times i didn't leave the car just playing that mashuga track over and over and over again being like what is this this is just mind-blowing and then that like that cd opened up the floodgates and and i just got like yeah into heavier and heavier stuff yeah i think it's funny actually like mine so mine's probably not the typical like pathway that um i think most metalheads like progress on before they actually fully get into metal but um, yeah, because, like, for me, I think similarly I did start out, like, listening to, like, pop punk and, like, um, like feminist punk and stuff like that, like, you know, no, no doubt Garbage and Bikini Kill, Donners, things like that. But then, um, yeah, I got into, like, a little bit of new metal, I guess, like, listening to Corn and stuff like that. But I think, like, the biggest, um, like, yeah, the biggest step I took, like, that really, like, put me pretty, placed me pretty firmly within, like, the metal realm was um, going to my local library and borrowing CDs. There used to be a program that if you had a, um, a local library card, like, to the local library, you could just borrow, like, CDs for free, right? And I think the CDs must have been there based on, like, people's donations and stuff. So it was a super random mix of, like, people's, like, CDs they didn't want anymore. But there happened to be... Um, Dark Thrones, cult, uh, the cult is alive, and um, Cradle of Filth, Damnation in a Day. So, you know, year nine me is just like, okay, sick. I'll <laughs> I'll borrow this and check it out. And then next minute, yeah, I was like, oh, this is this is amazing. And then yeah, that that kind of like set me on the path getting into like some uh, more death black metal and stuff like that. So, yeah, I don't know if that's how most people come across those albums, but that is certainly how I came across them. <laughs> By visit your local library, yeah. kids, and I what you'll find. Yeah, <laughs> it is weird that both of us kind of cradle of filth yeah. was a, a stepping stone for yeah. Uh, I mean, I know they get a lot of uh, you know, like eh, it's not real black metal, but they oh, they've released some really good albums. Their last album was actually their, their newest album. I thought was one of the best things they've done in a while. It was pretty really sick. Yeah, I liked it. yeah. Cradle of filth continues to do a lot of cool things, and uh, I have a soft spot for them. Like Midian again, like some of the lyrics, I I try not to pay attention to anymore, but. Uh, uh, there's a little too gross for me at 35 compared to 16, uh, but but I have a like, I have such a huge soft spot for that album. That album was just eye opening. Well, and they're clearly doing something right. They can still continue to gain fans and yeah. still yeah. pushing out music after I, I don't yeah. I don't know how long. Maybe 20 years, maybe I, I don't know. But. Yeah, at least something like that. Then. 
It's got to be more than 20 years at this point. Anyways. Well, Shout out to the underground band Cradle of <laughs> Check them out if you haven't heard of them. They're new. <laughs> Real deep cuts here. Wes and Jess, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time on Gyro Nation Metal. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. The podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you would like to support this podcast, please consider checking out my Patreon. Thank you.